Hello, I'm Mercedes Stevenson, and you're listening to The West Walk. For the first time in five years, the leaders of Canada, Mexico, and the United States are meeting face-to-face in Washington on Thursday. There's a lot to talk about, from ending the COVID pandemic to fighting climate change. But it's the relationship between Prime Minister Justin Trudeau and U.S. President Joe Biden that will be front and center for Canadians. Joining me now is Canada's ambassador to the United States, Kirsten Hillman. Thank you so much for making time for us today, Ambassador. I know you must have a very busy schedule as this Three Amigos Summit is approaching. What do you expect to be the priorities at this summit for Canada and for all three leaders? Thanks, Mercedes. It's so good to be with you, uh, be with you today. Um, so, you know, it's been a long time since we've had a, a trilateral, a Three Amigos Summit. And I think, you know, in that time, we've been through a lot. Our continent's been through a lot. Our world has been through a lot. So I expect the leaders will want to sit down and talk about uh, the things that are most pressing for them domestically and in our region. Top among them, of course, is getting to the other side of COVID, making sure we get those vaccination programs concluded and we get people vaccinated, but also climate change protection. There are migration issues in the region that are very important to Mexico, getting our economies back on track. Um, You know, there's a long list of things that they'll want to talk about in terms of doing things together today and, and hopefully charting a path for this partnership going forward. One of the criticisms that we've heard from uh, people like Mary Scott Greenwood or from the Business Council of Canada is that it seems to be difficult at times to get the Biden administration's attention, Uh, that they say they're an ally and it's certainly more predictable to deal with than the Trump administration, but it seems like it's America first and then everyone else. And there's a difficulty getting on their radar screen or getting them to see our side on the issues. Obviously, you're the person who has to execute these policies on the ground. What is your experience like dealing with the Biden administration? And are you concerned um, that America first is pushing Canada way down the list? Well, I think the first thing I'd like to say is that I never have any challenges getting um, in to talk to the Biden administration when I have something that Canada needs to talk to them about, whether that's the White House or, you know, cabinet secretaries, our ministers are able to contact them, I'm able to contact them. So we are able to talk to them when we want to um, on things that matter to us and on things that matter to them. I think that You do note, however, and I think it's fair to say, that the administration has a lot of very pressing domestic priorities that they are trying to advance uh, here in the United States. They have passed their infrastructure legislation. There's another large bill, a social infrastructure bill called the Reconciliation Bill down here in the U.S. that they're working hard to pass. Um, And there's bills regarding just keeping the government financed and moving forward. All of these things take up a lot of time and energy, but it doesn't diminish our ability to talk to them about our bilateral relationship or ways in which we want to interact you know, in the world. And I think the, the progress that we made at the G20 and the COP26 really uh, underline that. Where are we at on Buy America? Because this is a big concern for a lot of the Canadian auto sector. There's a tax incentive there that would really advantage American producers. It could be very damaging to the Canadian auto industry. Do you get a sense that American lawmakers and the American presidency is open to making an exception for Canada there or getting rid of that part of the bill? So the the tax provision you're talking about is under discussion on Capitol Hill. It is in a draft uh, that may pass the House, 
while it's under debate and discussion within the House, we are working very hard to make sure that we bring the facts to the table for the lawmakers to explain to them why that tax credit, while of course it's not good news for Canada, it's also really not good news for the U.S. The degree of integration that we have in our auto sector will mean that that tax credit will um, disrupt are very efficient and effective supply chains in the auto sector, supply chains that literally tens of thousands of American jobs rely on. So we're, we're working hard to get those um, facts on the table for the U.S. Congress. Um, but that's just the first step. Uh, in this legislative process here in the United States, a bill passes the House, uh, then it is up for discussion, debate. There needs to be a bill in the Senate as well. Um, and those, the, the Senate version and the House version then need to be you know, brought together into one version. Um, so we're talking to the Senate, we're talking to the House of Representatives, we're talking to the White House, uh, we're talking to members of uh, the, White, the administration, cabinet members, and we're explaining to them that this tax credit just isn't in the U.S. interest. It will hurt American jobs. Um, it's inconsistent with uh, their international commitments, including their most recent commitments under COSMA with them. And frankly, you know, we should all be working to create more EVs together and maximize the number of EVs that are on the roads. Um, and this provision won't do that. It'll disrupt the rapid and very competitive EV sector that we're trying to build here in, in the Canada-U.S. ecosystem. Thanks. And yeah, I, sh I should clarify because uh, you were correct there. There's two totally different bills. There's the Buy America bill, which has to do with domestic contracts. And there's a separate bill that they're looking at uh, on the automotive industry. Both don't spell good uh, news for Canada. So good to hear that you're engaging on those. Line 5 is another big issue for a lot of folks here in Canada that people are concerned about. Of course, the state of Michigan wants to shut that pipeline down. Very important to the Canadian economy. What kind of response are you getting in Washington to the appeals to keep that pipeline going? Yeah. Well, I think that, you know, there are a lot of a lot of people in Washington who recognize that that is a very essential piece of infrastructure, who recognize that it's a piece of infrastructure that has operated safely for over 60 years. Um, but there are concerns in Michigan, as you know well, from from some who are, are afraid that this pipeline might need to be refurbished or that it might pose risks to the Great Lakes. And what I say is Canada cares about the health and safety of the Great Lakes as much as any American uh, and, all, and all Michiganders. Um, and we believe that there's a way in which we can work together and primarily, you know, Enbridge working with the state of Michigan to make a safe pipeline even safer. Um, they're working on that. They, they have sought to negotiate a solution there. Uh, those negotiations haven't borne fruit yet. Um, but we are also having discussions with the U.S. federal government. Those discussions are really just about to get underway. So there isn't a lot to, to report on that. They're setting up sort of the parameters of those discussions, who will talk to who, what the timelines will be. Um, and, you know, we'll have more to say on that uh, in, the coming, in the coming weeks or maybe months. Ambassador Hillman, another big topic that is less than news now that we have the two Michaels here home safe and sound. Uh, and you were deeply involved in the discussions about their freedom and, and everyone is so glad to have them home. But that issue of China becoming an increasing political and military superpower is still very much a concern. People are trying to figure out where the Biden administration fits on all of this, what their positions are. What kind of discussions are we having with our American counterparts about our policy and our strategy towards China? Yeah, that's a great question, and uh, and yes, we are all very, very happy to have the Michaels home. I think that um, you know what I can say is that China is a an enormous 
uh, consequential country that impacts almost every aspect of the lives uh, of Canadians as well as Americans as well as our allies around the world. And we're all kind of grappling with how do we have a sophisticated uh, approach to dealing with this country that is a very significant country on the world stage. So, so you know, we've seen recently efforts to work with China in the fight against climate change and to get China to take some commitments that are essential if we're going to fight that this serious problem as a globe. It's essential for them to, to step up and be part of that, that fight. Um, at the same time, there are other areas where it's, it's harder to work together and obviously areas around human rights um, and uh, peace and security um, and arbitrary detention. You know, this is much, much more difficult. And there we have to work with our allies to find ways to try to make sure that this kind of behavior that is contrary to the values that we are trying to advance in the world is minimized, is to the extent possible contained or ceases. Uh, complicated, but the only way to really get that kind of thing done is to work with like-minded allies and, and all be pushing in the same direction. So there, there are many different ways in which we need to be working with China. We, we need to recognize that they're an economic force in the globe um, and they're a market for, for many, many countries and, and that's not going to change. So, so we have to approach the relationship in a sophisticated, sort of multifaceted way and very much working with our allies. And we talk to the Americans about that regularly. We talk to, about each of these different areas of activity. And then we talk about strategizing with other partners around the world. Ambassador Hillman, that's all the time we have for today. Thank you so much for joining us and good luck at the Three Amigos. Since November the 1st, intense negotiations were underway at COP26 in Glasgow to address climate change with concrete actions for the world to follow. Canada pledged to do its part, including cutting greenhouse gas emissions by 40 to 45 percent by 2030, capping oil and gas emissions to achieve net zero emissions by 2050, ending thermal coal exports and phasing out conventional coal-fired electricity in Canada by 2030. And Canada has also committed to only selling zero emission cars and vans by 2040. And on top of that, has also promised to end deforestation. Obviously, that is a long list. Uh, can we achieve it? And is it enough? Well, the Green Party's Elizabeth May has been watching and negotiating these commitments closely. She is there representing the Green Party for Canada, and she joins me now from Glasgow. Elizabeth, thank you for making time for us. How are you? Well, it's been, it's been as you can imagine, a very stressful last two weeks, and results were uh, not what we had hoped. So um, I'm reflective, I suppose you'd have to say, reflective and tired. I can imagine. So when you're talking about some of those results, I mean, we just read what felt like a laundry list of pretty significant promises. So when you look at these promises, do, do you think that we're likely to even achieve the ones that we've made? Is, is this realistic? Is there a plan to actually get uh, to these goals and to these numbers that the Canadian government is setting out? You, well, I, I want to step back and say the point of the conference, the point of the Paris Agreement, and this is all, of course, a, uh, an ongoing process created by the Paris Agreement, which itself was created by the treaty that Canada signed in 1992 at the Rio Earth Summit to confront the climate crisis. Actually, in 1992, we could have avoided the climate emergency we're now in. We're in a climate emergency now, so the timeline is shorter 
We have to do more and faster. And that is globally, not just Canada. So this is the framework place that all countries come together and Canada's commitments fall far short of what the science requires, uh, although they, as you read them out, it, as you said, a laundry list, but the fundamentals are about holding to no more than 1.5 degree global average temperature increase. Uh, virtually all of the rest of the industrialized world has already done more than Canada has done and has pledged to do more again, but still, the collectivity of all the promises made here in Glasgow don't hold us to 1.5 degrees. So uh, the, as, as Antonio Guterres, UN Secretary General said uh, in the waning hours of these negotiations, hanging on to 1.5 degrees, which is essential to ensure our children have anything like a livable world. He said that that commitment is now on life support. It can you take us, Liz, through that 1.5 degrees a little bit? Because I think it's something we hear a lot. We hear a lot of it in the media, and I'm not sure it's always clear why that number has been selected or what happens if we have climate change that goes beyond 1.5 degrees. Oh, gosh, thank you for asking, because no, it, it, is, it is not an easy concept. First of all, the full commitment is to hold to 1.5 degrees global average temperature increase compared to what it was before the industrial revolution. It, it doesn't sound like much, 1.5 degrees, but when you consider it's a global average number, it's a big number. Um, just to give some context, it, it, the temp global average temperature today compared to what it was 10,000 years ago when Canada was under several kilometers of ice, that difference is only five degrees global average temperature increase in, cel in Celsius. So 1.5 is huge. We already have increased global average temperature globally by 1.1 degrees Celsius. But as we know, Canada is experiencing faster rates of warming than other parts of the world, particularly our Arctic is warming three times faster than this global average figure. So what we did in Paris, and I, I, I do want to give credit to our Minister of Environment at the time, Catherine McKenna, Canada was the first industrialized country to step up and support the calls from the developing world, from low-lying island states that know that they will literally cease to exist with uh, sea level rise unless we act faster and, and cut more deeply than anything that's currently pledged. Uh, when, when we agreed in Paris, and it was Catherine McKenna again who said Canada wants to see 1.5 degrees as the goal in the treaty. Uh, we helped put that in place in the Paris Agreement. It's it requires more cuts than we have now committed to doing as a nation, and the collectivity of nations aren't there yet. Uh, we did have the, well, the, the, the world gets to give uh, requests to our science body, the, the leading global science body that's part of this process is the Intergovernmental Panel on Climate Change. And it's that group of scientists, world leading scientists in a major report that told us in 2018, if we don't hold to 1.5 degrees, uh, the situation becomes far more dangerous. It means the loss of lives of tens of millions of people. It means the loss of the ability to ensure that we have Arctic ice all year round. Uh, the impacts for the, the planet as a whole, if we go to two degrees, are quite substantially more dangerous than if we can hold to 1.5 degrees. 
Uh, listen, I, I understand your point about th this not being enough to achieve the 1.5 degrees and how critical is that that happens. But on the other side, you also have provinces like Alberta and Saskatchewan and folks out there who say, look, if we get cut off tomorrow from a carbon economy, there will be thousands of people out of jobs and the economic damage will be in the billions. So this is too much too fast economically. What do you think of that? Well, first of all, no one's saying we're cutting it off tomorrow. We have to make the commitment yesterday so we plan ahead. And we have a just transition. That's a very key concept that we plan ahead so that the regions of the country or of any part of the world that are fossil fuel production dependent or their workforce is dependent, that we make the transition. But but the good news around our energy supplies is that Canada is a real, I mean, I remember when Stephen Harper called for us to be an energy superpower. Well, we can be, but it's going to be solar and it's it's wind and it's geothermal and it's tidal. Uh, the price of solar has now plummeted so that it's cheaper than coal. Wind power prices have also dropped. The ability to produce um, energy that if, at, once you've installed your solar panels, you're not paying to, you know, to, to rent more of, of the sun's rays. You, you've got it. We've got a very exciting economic opportunity in energy that is um, not threatening our survival. That's an important point. Uh, is healthier, doesn't pollute the air, causing increases in asthma. Goodness knows the, the climate change impacts for my province of British Columbia, where we can't breathe a lot of the summer from forest fires, we need to protect the quali air quality and we need to have uh, a healthy source of energy for our economy and for our future for the planet. Now, it, for people in Alberta and Saskatchewan who don't want to see the end of fossil fuels, it, it's it's kind of like keeping on wishing if you were in the horse and buggy business it, or in the earlier part of the 1900s that you could hang on to the jobs that everyone had in making uh, wagon wheels and, and stabling horses and making buggy whips. There's a technological revolution. There's a, there's a uh, the, the reality is that the investment money is moving to renewables. Uh, the excitement around a new green economy is unstoppable. Uh, the, the question isn't whether we're going to be able to produce fossil fuels forever. It's the question of, can we ensure that we phase out our dependence on fossil fuels fast enough so that the damage done by burning them is, is constrained at a point that allows us to have a stable climate. We're, we're never going to get back the climate we had when I was growing up. We are in a new regime of extreme weather events that are dangerous. I mean, 600 people died in British Columbia this summer because of the climate crisis and the heat dome that sat over much of BC. We, this is not a theoretical risk. This is a daily reality of climate emergency. We have to respond to it. And in doing so, we have to ensure that those places that were producing something dangerous are protected from uh, a, a negative disruptive impact on their lives. Liz, there's some folks who say um, if Canada meets all of our goals and does all of this, there's still the issue of big countries like China or Russia who are not doing their part or big auto emitters like Volkswagen who aren't signing on. Have you seen any progress towards that at COP26 or are we continuing to try to push progress here in Canada and other countries like that while some of the really big emitters do nothing? Let's be clear, we are a big emitter. We're one of the 10 countries in the world that in absolute terms, not just per person, in absolute terms, we're one of the 10 
biggest polluters. And because the emissions that we emitted 20 years ago are still in the atmosphere, the emissions from 40 years ago are still in the atmosphere, Canada is a big polluter. And our record, despite, I, I mean, I, I know we've had good announcements, many good announcements over the last number of years, but our emissions keep going up. Our fossil fuel subsidies keep going up. So we don't have a great record. Uh, and we are asking poorer countries to do more. But the reality is at this meeting, for the first time, um, Prime Minister Bodhi, Modi of India, being here on behalf of that government, said that they will be producing half of all their energy from renewable sources by 2030. They took a target for net zero by 2070, which is unacceptably weak, but it's the first time we've seen India step up with targets in the near term to 2030. China committed um, in a tandem press conference with the U.S. climate envoy John Kerry to do more. And the key words in the U.S.-China declaration were that this is a decisive decade, right? So this net zero by 2050 discussion that is really dominating Canada's climate targets uh, was called out frequently at this conference. We have to have really deep cuts by 2030. Canada's 40 to 45 percent reductions are against our 2005 levels. You know, the host country, the UK, is cutting by far more than that against its 1990 levels. So Canada is 21 percent above 1990 levels. The rest of Europe is substantially below 1990 levels, on the order of 40, 45 percent below 1990. So again, the base year matters. Canada's record isn't good. Our commitments are still too weak. And yes, we can achieve them, but we can't achieve them while we're building pipelines and we can't achieve them while we're increasing subsidies and we can't achieve them when we think we can frack our way to natural gas. There are things we must do in this country that we have not yet committed to do. But I think the direction is a good one. I'm not going to say that it isn't important to take steps in the right direction. But it's too late for steps. We need leaps. Okay. Elizabeth May, thank you so much for joining us from Glasgow today. On Thursday, the country took two minutes of silence to remember the fallen who sacrificed their lives for our freedom here in Canada and to protect vulnerable people around the world. A hard remembrance day for many veterans after a very difficult year for the military and the fall of Afghanistan to the Taliban. We here at the West Block would like to thank all of our veterans and those still serving in uniform for their service and leave you today with Canada Remembering. I just wanted to be a part of, you know, the ceremony, the respect and the honouring of, uh, of our fallen and, uh, and their families and, and all the rest. So that, that's important to me. I do have a few people that, uh, friends of mine, colleagues, uh, classmates that, that were lost overseas. Um, I guess the biggest sense of loss I have is not being able to continue to serve. Um, it was part of my identity. Uh, it was part of, <laughs> it's part of living and breathing every day.